Welcome to the Apostles Houston podcast, and thanks for listening. As a community following Jesus in Houston, we want to be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do the kinds of things Jesus did. Wherever you are on your spiritual journey, we invite you to join us for worship each Sunday at 10 a.m. in Houston Heights. For more information, visit us online at ApostlesHouston.org. Well, howdy, everybody. I think it'd be uh, entirely appropriate and warranted if we just expressed our appreciation to the band uh, this morning. That was very... I found that very helpful. Uh, In fact, I found it so helpful that I'm going to try very hard to control my excitement uh, as I begin to preach. So (laughs) I'm going to control it. You want me to control it. Uh, So a few years ago, uh, 1983 uh, to be exact, Diana uh, and I moved into the Clear Lake area. That's southeastern Harris County. That's parts of Galveston County. And we went there to start a Young Life ministry from scratch. Now, the good people in the Clear Lake area were not exactly crying out Uh, for Jack and Di to come and start Young Life. Nobody there had ever heard of Young Life, but nevertheless, Young Life thought it was a good idea to send us uh, down there for this missional endeavor. And it was hard. Our job uh, was to make friends with high school kids for Jesus' sake. So my job as a fully uh, grown man with a great head of hair and an excellent bench press to body weight ratio, my job was (laughs) to come to town as a stranger and meet as many high school boys as I could. Now, in the year 2022, what I'm articulating sounds very sketchy, does it not? It was different in the early 80s. Times were different. Uh, High school-aged young people in the early 80s were uh, what we would call free-range. Was anybody here uh, a high school person in the early to mid-80s? Raise your hand. Just a couple. Can 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 you confirm for me? that that was not a safety culture dominated by semi-neurotic helicopter parents who were micromanaging the lives of their young people. Do you agree that was not the way it was? That was not the way it was. Uh, uh, And so I was just out there meeting high school boys, Uh, doing my job, showing up every day. I would meet them at... Stone's Gym, this musclehead gym where the high school football players got together uh, to train. I would meet them at these clandestine, you know, uh, uh, quarter pipes where the skateboarders got together to thrash. Uh, I would just meet them at any public basketball court where two or more were gathered. I would meet them at grocery stores everywhere I was meeting boys. And the police did not have to get involved. 
the word got out a little bit about me and some moms concerned about their, uh, their sons who were not fitting in or lonely or otherwise uh, troubled or depressed. Moms would begin to call me and want me to meet their sons, but the sons could not know that the mom was orchestrating the meeting. So I'd get a tip. I'd get a tip. It's like, okay, uh, Brian is going to be playing basketball uh, in our driveway this afternoon between 4 and 5. Just show up and do what you can. <laughs> and I was showing up and doing what I could. Uh, <clears throat> One of the young uh, guys I met through the intervention of a mom was a very uh, extraordinary and different fellow. I guess we would say today he was neurologically divergent. And when I first met him, uh, what made my initial strong impression was that he had this really big, really beautiful, fanatically loyal pit bull that was looking at me uh, in a very menacing way as I was trying to stranger danger engaged a conversation with this young guy. I had no idea what I was walking into. Uh, and the first thing he said to me was, you should know uh, that dog can rip the arm off your body. And I responded uh, in pure Jack fashion that I was very attached to my arm and that that dog would probably break his little teeth on the twisted steel pythons hanging from my shoulder. <laughs> and he did not laugh. In fact, with a very uh, uh, deadpan and convincing delivery, he went into a technical description of the PSI. And for those of you who are not engineers or mathematicians, that's the pounds per square inch uh, of the biting power of a pit bull in order to convince me that I was mistaken in my self-confidence. Now, I didn't know about autism uh, back then. I don't think I had ever met anyone on any type of spectrum that I was aware of, but this young man was on the spectrum. And it became clear to me uh, early in our conversation that he had an extraordinary talent uh, in a couple of specific areas. Uh, uh, for example, he had this um, amazing computational ability. Uh, you could give him a string of long numbers and say them quickly, and he would multiply them in his head and give you uh, the grand total. Uh, his friends described him as a human calculator, and that was super cool. Uh, and he had this extraordinary memory uh, that for every day he'd ever lived, you could give him the date and he could tell you the day of the week and give you the weather report for that day. Absolutely amazing. Uh, uh, I really love this kid. I thought I was looking at something that was pointing me to some of the deeper mysteries of human existence with this guy. I just didn't know about the condition. Uh, and that was five years before the movie Rain Man. So you realize this is a real uh, condition. The movie Rain Man, a great film, was based on a real guy, 
Kim Peek, and you should read up on him, an extraordinary individual uh, with a low IQ but an extraordinary mind. And he could do all of those things, the, the, the extreme uh, memory abilities, the ability to digest and recall, total recall any book that he read, the ability to do these complex mathematical equations uh, without pen or, or pencil or any device whatsoever. So, so this is a real thing. Uh, there are a limited number of people among us who have these super impressive abilities, uh, even though they have what is described as a neurological disorder, or because they have what's described as a neurological disorder. Uh, lately, I've been focused on this woman in Australia, Rebecca Chirac. You should look her up. Uh, I think she's in her by 30 now. I don't. I think this was a dated article I pulled off of, of the internet. But she has this neurological condition where she uh, has near total recall of every event, every moment from every day of her life, going back to birth. <coughs> Crazy. And as it turns out. That's not such a great blessing. Now, if you are like me, uh, you would probably want to have at least uh, an enhanced memory capability. Who here would like to be able to remember things better? Uh, we don't want total recall. We want the God-given ability to selectively edit uh, and forget. But there are certain basic things I want to be able to remember, and I'm having a hard time doing it. So, uh, so here's what we're going to do today, uh, uh, my pledge to you. So uh, as we're continuing this uh, series on Romans, and I think you should check out as many of the prior sermons in the series via podcast as you possibly can. It's been an amazing march through this theological masterpiece, uh, Paul's letter to the house churches at Rome. Uh, today we're going to focus on just two verses, Romans 12, 1 and 2. But the bonus added value today is that if you follow my simple plan uh, at no additional cost, you will become a limited purpose memory savant. That's an LPMS, okay? So from today going forward, you will be able to remember the most consequential moment of every day that you live. Ten years from now, Lord willing, you will be able to tell anybody who will listen about the most important thing you did on any given day between June 26, 2022 and June 26, 2032. So are you with me? Are you ready? Okay. So let's look at our passage. Uh, this is the New Jack version. This is my own uh, translation. I'll make a few comments on it uh, throughout the course of the, of the sermon. It's not perfect. It's a work in progress. But uh, this, is what, uh, this is what I came up with. Brothers and sisters, I exhort you in response to God mercy, God's mercies to present your bodies as a sacrifice, living, set apart, and God-pleasing. This act of self-donation is the worship that aligns you with the Lagos. Stop being conformed to the bogus world system, but be continually 
transformed by the renewing of the mind so that you may validate what God's will is. Good, pleasing, and teleon. All right. So let's get started. God's mercies. Paul's reference to God's mercies is a shorthand reference for the gospel. So I want to run through this in five quick points. Just remind us of the basic narrative, the good news of God. God's creative purpose is his telos is shalom through love. That is the baseline reality described in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. And God called his creation very good. Point two, shalom through love presupposes and requires freedom. And human beings exercise their freedom to vandalize the shalom of creation. A rebellion leads to enslavement, the dehumanizing power of sin on the macro and micro levels. Point three, on the macro level, God's good creation is deformed into a bogus world system. On the micro level, our authentic sense of who we are and what makes us human is deformed into a bogus self. Uh, the Greek word for that is sarx, uh, and that's usually translated as flesh or sinful human nature. Point four, God does not leave us in the mess we made. And beginning in Genesis chapter 12 with the call of Abraham and culminating in the awe-inspiring description of the new creation in the book of Revelation, the Bible tells us the true story of God's shalom restoration project. The decisive events in the shalom restoration project are the incarnation, the life, the crucifixion, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ who liberates us from the bogus world system and the bogus self. And the outpouring of the Holy Spirit who empowers us to participate in the Shalom Restoration Project. Paul spells all of this out in Romans chapters 1 through 11. In Romans 12, Paul begins to answer the critical theological question. So what? So our passage structurally uh, comprises uh, one uh, exhortation or plea or word of encouragement and two corollary imperatives in the present tense. Now I say uh, exhortation, plea, or word of encouragement because the Greek word parakaleo uh, has all of those meanings. And it's not clear in the context of Romans 12 whether Paul is pleading or he's encouraging or he is effectively commanding. What is clear is that he has a great sense of urgency that we hear and respond to God's mercies in a particular way. And everything that follows from Romans 12, 1 through Romans 15, 13 hangs on this exhortation. Arguably, the credibility of the church in these troubled times hangs on this exhortation. Present your bodies as a sacrifice. Now this uh, is a plea to each of us individually, and it's a plea to us as a community. God 
uses the word bodies here to refer to the totality of our beings. God does not simply want our metaphorical hearts and minds. He is, looking, he is not looking for people who are vaguely spiritual, but who claim the right to do whatever they want to do with their own bodies. God is looking for His people, rescued by His grace, uh, to uh, embody His love in this broken and rebellious world. God is the rightful owner of our bodies because He is the Creator. And because uh, we learn in 1 Corinthians 6, He paid a high price uh, to purchase our bodies. So God is looking for us to present the totality of our beings, uh, including, as Tennessee Ernie Ford would say, our muscle and blood and skin and bone, our mind that's weak and our back that's strong, and including our metaphorical hearts and minds, including everything that we are, material and immaterial, physical and spiritual, the idea is that has to be presented on the altar. That's the only response to God's mercies that makes any sense. When we present ourselves to Him, we are simply acknowledging two incontrovertible facts. We belong to Him. That's an incontrovertible fact. He has the right and title to your entire life. So our presentation is simply an acknowledgement of that stubborn and important fact. But it's also an acknowledgement of a second stubborn and important fact that we often neglect uh, to remember, which is he is more competent than we are to manage our lives. He understands our best interest more than we do. Any response to God's mercies, any other response to God's mercies is irrational and nonsensical, Paul would say. In fact, that's what Paul means when he says, this act of self-donation is the worship that aligns you with the logos. Now, there's a, there's a Greek word in here, logikon, that appears just twice in the New Testament. Uh, there's a lot of confusion about how to translate it. A lot of translations just whip, whip, whimp out and say spiritual, your spiritual act of worship. That tells me nothing. Uh, other translations say rational. Well, okay, that's beginning to go down the right road because you understand that the logos in Greek philosophy, the Greeks understood that there was, there was coherence there was reason, there was deep grammar and deep math at the bottom of all reality. The Greeks understood it better than we understand it today, that there is transcendent meaning and purpose, and they saw all of that in the logos. And of course, what they didn't know was that the logos is not a what, it's not a series of ideas, it's not a philosophical concept, the logos is a who. Hence the declaration in John 1.1, 1, 1, the Lagos, you can finish it, was with God in the beginning, was God, became flesh, dwelt among us, he has a name. So 
This act of self-donation aligns us with the deepest grammar, the deepest mathematical realities that provide coherence to all uh, that is seen and unseen. Why wouldn't we do that? So let's talk about the two corollary imperatives quickly. The first uh, imperative, stop being conformed to the bogus world system. Now the grammar for the first imperative assumes that our default setting, our normal mode of operation, is in fact conformity to the bogus world system. If you doubt me, answer a few diagnostic questions. Left to your own predilections, do you tend to be selfish or at least self-preoccupied? Do you tend to love things and use people? Do you tend to focus more on your image and keeping up appearances than on having authentic integrity and pure hearts? Do you tend to waste time distracting yourself to death? Are you quick to anger and slow to forgive? Do you worry more than you pray? Do I need to ask any more diagnostic questions? When we present our lives to God, we must also make an affirmative commitment to resist the relentless pressure to conform to the way things are in this broken and rebellious world. The church is supposed to be counter, a countercultural community, or maybe the better term is an alternative, alt-cultural community. But most of us, certainly uh, including me, <clears throat> have carved out lives of comfortable, complacent conformity in a culture that has been uh, <clears throat> generally and seductively congenial. There's a very good argument that my legal career, my professional success as a trial lawyer, uh, uh, has been helped by my public, very public association with Jesus Christ in a Bible Belt uh, community like uh, Texas. There's a good argument for that. That will not be the case for our children and our grandchildren if they follow Jesus. For their sake, starting today, we must say no to the ways and means of the bogus world system. We should be a community that is marked by that type of gospel nonconformity. But now, the second corollary imperative Simply saying no, uh, the negative uh, is not enough. At the same time, we must continually say yes to the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. This is another present imperative. Let your minds continually be renewed. Uh, this is like the imperative to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to be continually filled with the Holy Spirit. This is an ongoing uh, duty and obligation. And it's vital because we cannot renew our own minds. 
We cannot appreciate and embody the irreconcilable differences between the way things are and the way things ought to be and ultimately will be unless we are filled by, filled with, led by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit empowers us to live out God's will in the down and dirty details of a rough and tumble world. Every day as we pray, thy will be done, we are asking God to have his way with us, to make us good, pleasing, uh, and agents of his shalom. That is what Paul means and why I didn't dare translate this last word here, teleon. You see the translator say, good, pleasing, and perfect. What does that tell you? It tells you nothing. We're not going to achieve the metaphysical perfection of the divine being. We have no idea what we're even talking about. But there is, a, there is a big clue about the meaning of this word, and it comes right from the lips of Jesus in Matthew 5, 48, in the Sermon on the Mount, where it's again mistranslated, where, where we, quote, we misquote Jesus saying, you shall be perfect, teleos, as your heavenly Father uh, is, teleoi, as your heavenly Father is perfect, the perfect one, teleos. Now, the, the word here, uh, telos is pointing to the goal or purpose of everything. We already know God's creative purpose is shalom through love. And then when Jesus says, uh, you must be teleoi, what he's saying is, you must be shalomizers as your heavenly father is the shalominator. <laughs> so what we're talking about here is the only way that we can be agents of shalom in this broken and rebellious world that desperately needs to see the way things ought to be embodied in a community of people is by the power of the Holy Spirit who can make us teleoi. Okay. That's pretty much all the theology I have for you. Uh, so here is the, here's the plan. Seven steps to be done each and every day. All right? Well, the first step, do it once. But you'll probably need to refresh each and every day if your memory is like mine. Because the first step is memorize Romans 12, 1 and 2. And feel free to use one of those lesser translations you can find, you know, in your own Bible. That's fine. Memorize Romans 12, 1 and 2. Step 2. Each day before you watch your first golden retriever video or do your first push-up, recite Romans 12, 1 and 2. Step 3. Thank God for his mercy. Say thank you. As you reflect on everything God has done for us in Jesus. Step four. Present yourself as a sacrifice. Tell God, I'm yours today. Now let me give you a, maybe an image that will be helpful here. Uh, any, any gamblers, any degenerate gamblers in the room? Any people who gamble and they have it completely under control? 
Okay. I know, I know you're not, it's just not a Presbyterian church, obviously. Uh, so, uh, so look, uh, Pascal, this, this great philosopher, mathematician, one of the great minds of all time, became radically converted to Jesus Christ. It shocked all of his intellectual friends back in the day. And he, uh, he's left us with a legacy of a lot of amazingly brilliant things, but the thing he's most famous for is this, this notion of the wager. Have you heard about Pascal's wager? So Pascal's wager has two fundamental uh, assumptions uh, in, his, uh, uh, in his wager. It is that, you know, uh, we're all going to die. I think that's a safe assumption. And the second assumption is we all have to place a bet. You do not get to not bet. And Pascal makes the argument, so uh, <clears throat> in light of that, how should we bet? And he works it through logically and brilliantly, and I'm going to not do it justice, but the point he gets to is if you bet uh, that there is a God, and it turns out there's not a God when you die, what have you lost? But if you bet that there is no God, and it turns out he's really there, the downside is staggering. Now, Pascal's wager has been misunderstood and misapplied uh, in such a way that people uh, uh, think that becoming a Christian is like hedging your bet, right? It's making this calculation and just putting enough into the game in order that if it turns out there's a God, I'm good. This has had all kinds of pernicious uh, effects in the life of the church in an age of easy believism and cheap grace, etc., etc., etc. That's not Pascal's point. Pascal saw it more like this. Uh, this is a game of poker. Now, does anybody, even though you're not gamblers, anybody can tell me what the unbeatable hand in poker is? The royal flush. Can we agree? Okay. If you are dealt the royal flush and you've got a big stack of chips. Do you do put just a few out there? Would you hedge on a royal flush? Or would you push every chip to the middle of the table? Well, any smart poker player knows, you know, you push it all in, then you're looking for, you're throwing your watch out there, you're taking off your boots, your snakeskin boots, you know, uh, you're putting all your various guns you're carrying illegally onto the, I mean, you, the whole thing, right? I don't hold anything back because I've got the royal flush. What the gospel is this. The mercies of God is this. Each and every one of us have been dealt a royal flush every day. So the imperative, the, the plea in Romans 12 is simply to say, make the right bet. Don't hold any part of your life back. Step five. As a corollary, say no to conformity to the bogus world system. Step six, say yes to the Holy Spirit's transformative power. I would articulate these words. Make them your own words, but, but pray them. Say it. Every day. Thank God, step seven, thank God again, and then tackle the day. 
starting with that video where the golden retriever is playing with the baby deer. Start there. All right. If you do this every day, then you will always remember the most important thing you did on any given day. Amen. Thanks again for listening. We hope this resource has been helpful to you. If you have questions or are just looking for more information, you can check out our website at apostleshouston.org.